Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. I'm Tuvia Kopstein, and in this episode, we are, we are sitting down with Amy Gutman. Now, before we talk about how awesome and amazing Amy Gutman is, which she absolutely is, a little bit of station identification. The Podcast Fellowship is what's behind Our Tribe, the podcast. What is the Podcast Fellowship? So I'm glad you asked, because the Podcast Fellowship is unbelievable. It is a global Jewish outreach initiative where we're Jewish college students and young professionals are connecting on a one-on-one level to local mentors who are living inspiring Jewish lives. And through this, they're examining their own Jewish heritage through the sources, through inspiring podcasts that speak about Torah perspective on everything in the world. Everything there is to have a perspective on, it's right, it's all there. And it's amazing. Check it out at podcastfellowship.org. And now... As an intro to Amy Gutman, Amy is a former financial trader, Wall Street uh, entrepreneur and hedge fund advisor who then took a turn, like you'll hear in our episode, and got involved with occupational therapy on a professional level, something she was interested in because of her personal story, and then took that occupational therapy as practice and then built it into something which is a whole system of continuing education where she and her sister Evelyn are constantly vetting out all of the new ideas and new fads and trends in occupational therapy and seeing who is a scammer and who is for real, providing that for the community of therapists and physicians that are a global community of therapists and physicians uh, hosting a weekly talk, hosting a podcast, and doing amazing things, and of course, relaxing with her old hobby of trading on the markets. So you'll love this episode with Amy. It's totally unique. Enjoy. Without further ado, our Tribe the Podcast with Amy Gutman. Okay, we're here with Amy Gutman. How are you, Amy? I am well, Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much, Tovia. I am so excited to speak with you. I'm excited about speaking to your community. Thank you so much for asking me to join you today. So I'm ready to get right into it. The thanks, uh, I have so much thanks for you for making scheduling, carving time out of your busy schedule to inform us and to enlighten us. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. So Amy, first, first and foremost, what do you do professionally? So I am a neurodevelopmental occupational therapist. And what that means is that I help families and individuals themselves, adults as well, who suffer with anxiety and processing delays. I am the founder of three companies, Hands-On OT Rehab, along with my sister, Evelyn, and Hands-On Approaches, which is a continuing education company. We provide training to therapists, pediatricians, psychologists, and we've been accredited across the world to provide this kind of education. And we also are the founders of a nonprofit called the Hope Foundation, which has a mission to prevent anxiety and mental health challenges. And that's what I am doing currently actively to the world. <laughs> and that's what we do. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're working all, on all three projects uh, simultaneously? Yes. So okay. we did not start, obviously, at the same time. Everything evolved over the last 25 years. I mm-hmm. started actually on Wall Street um, as a young person. 
I was very interested in the financial markets and growing up in Borough Park, it was not usual for a girl like me to be involved in learning about stocks and hedge funds and all these different kind of components. But my parents were very, very encouraging and allowed us to use our creativity and our mind, whatever we needed. And I started trading stocks when I was actually 10 years old. What? Yes. <laughs> Investor, Investor's Business Daily was like a weekly, daily thing that I read. My father, Allah Hashalom, was always encouraging me. And he said, you know, whatever you want to put your mind to is okay. I was a very curious person. I still am a very deep thinker. And my interests were very varied. Um, I was the kind of person who was reading maybe three books at a time, one book on Judaism, another one on self-development, another one on business or anything, you know, that was like involved with creating information or constructs. And my, my father saw that I had a little bit of a beyond kind of interest and he didn't discourage me. He encouraged me to do it within his own boundaries. And that was beautiful because I did not grow up thinking that anything I was doing was unusual. And but you must have, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sure. In your, in your traditional school in Borough Park in Brooklyn, in the midst of, you know, observant uh, Hasidic, yeah. <laughs> you must have, you must have felt that you were different from all the other girls around you who weren't reading the Financial Times at, at 10 years old. Yeah, 100%. And I will share with you that growing up in general, I felt different, but how much more so in that school environment? Because um, I, and this is part of my our story for for why I am where I am today, is that I struggled with feeling intensely the world in general, physiologically. I didn't have trauma. I had loving parents. I grew up in a loving home. There was no big issue or big episode, but I grew up always being hypersensitive to the world around me. Textures, lights, sounds. I was very in tune, very aware. Um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. If I would have been growing up now, I would have been given a label probably. My intelligence was very high. I was able, I did well academically, top of my class, but internally I felt like there was a lot going on. And being in a school environment, which is so orthodox and so limited and really always opening ourselves up to that kind of world and seeing all the nuances early on, I was fortunate to have two teachers, I will never forget them, who encouraged me and saw what I was about and encouraged me to pursue being who I am, meaning if I had interest in learning about subjects that were maybe out of the norm, like law and philosophy, they were okay with it. And um, one of them, her name is Mrs. Miles. She's out there in the world. And she was my sixth and eighth grade English teacher. And when she would read what I would write, she saw that there was more and she took an interest in me and she encouraged me. And between her and Rabbi Ehrenreich, Allah Hashalom, who's no longer here, the principal of Isaac of Bar Park, he also saw that in me and he was very accepting. So I grew up in a world where there were these constraints, but I had individuals who guided me. And I think that that was a key point in me not feeling stigma and me feeling free between my family supporting my interests in the constructs of religious life and orthodox life at the same time having also outsiders who saw that in me also so i was fortunate in that and i think i think we live in a world where hopefully as humans we are becoming more aware especially in the orthodox community to see who needs what they what their interests are and not to squash them, but to support them in the best way possible. That's just like my message for, you know, if you are out there in that, in the school setting, 
you're you're changing lives. I'm telling you 40 years later that this is the imprint that those folks had on me that allowed me to be here. So you're, you're addressing <laughs> right now. You're addressing the teachers who recognize in their students uh, interests that are beyond the 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 I guess the central focus of the schools. Yes, and of course the parents are the first step, right? Without my father having allowed me to explore that, I wouldn't have been there. But then to have had some teachers who saw that interest and instead of putting me down, allowed me to expand myself. I'll share that when I ask a question and it was something that was against the philosophy, which many children may be asking nowadays. Excuse me for a moment. Okay. I'll take a sip too. <clears throat> L'chaim. L'chaim. Um, I remember asking a question when I was in seventh grade about um, creation. And I asked, so what happened before creation? You know, that's a typical question we can ask. And I remember that there was a teacher who squashed me a bit and she said, that's not something to ask. If you ask that, that you're an apicurus, I'm apicurus. And I came home. Wait, can you explain for our listeners? They sure. don't know the term. Sure. So an apicurus is someone who denies God's existence. They feel like, you know, God does not exist. And being an Orthodox Jewish girl, being very interested in Judaism, I'm the kind of girl who was praying and doing all this kindness out there. It, it hurt me so deeply. Mm-hmm. And I came home and I asked my father, who was a survivor of um, Europe, and he came as an immigrant. He was not a very learned man as far as being able to read the text of the Talmud and all that, but he was very committed to Torah life. He was a gabai of many shuls, started lots of shuls in our community, always supporting learning. And I came home and I asked this question to him, and he said, you know, Friday, which is my Hebrew name, he's like, Friday, I want you to know something. That's a perfectly good question to ask. And even though I may not know the answer, I will try and find out for you. And I think that the balance, and and we talk a lot about this when we speak to young individuals who are trying to figure out how can they get into the world and keep that balance of from kite and also being in the professional world. It doesn't start with being professional. It starts with being human and understanding that need. It's really a counterbalance. And I saw that in my father because instead of him putting down the teacher and saying, you know, she never should have said that to you. He just went and encouraged me to keep asking. And at the same time, gave an outlet that there would be a way to figure out that answer and a resource because there's nothing that we can't encourage someone to do in the constructs of where we are. And that's something so important because sometimes when we get squashed or we ask a question and we get hurt, if other people in our lives are not validating that, you know, no, there is, it's okay. You can do that. Allow that freedom of a mistake or it's not a mistake to ask a question but allow a freedom for maybe that teacher should not have said that to me right we can all agree that that's not the right thing to say to an impressionable 11 or 12 year old girl who's trying to think for herself instead of him squashing her and focusing on the relationship of the human part he was focusing on what i needed and i think that that's a key point when you're going through discovery and trying to see what your role is and where you should go in life is being able to be around people who see you and hear you and understand you. And that my father played a very big role in that for both myself and my sister. He was always encouraging us to think. And even when the teachers and the outside sources were sometimes saying things in a box, he said, you have to respect where they're coming from and, you know, acknowledge where they're coming from. But it's okay to ask questions and think for yourself. Okay, that was a bit of a ramble, but I guess I was breaking that down with you here. So this is I'm so glad we started with this. This is such a refreshing message because I although I haven't watched or read all of these things, I know that in the in Hollywood and in uh in Netflix and all this, there's a sense there's a certain sensational story of 
of the Jew who is oppressed by the, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Jew who's oppressed by the narrow-minded Orthodox educational framework and is breaking free and then becomes a free, you know, a free citizen, a free bird. And uh, what you're telling me is that even though you had that, you felt that tension as you were growing up and your interests were much broader than what was generally around you, you, you still had the outlet to encourage and you and you now have developed into an adult who's, you know, passionately uh, connected to Torah and Torah living, but, but you have, you went your own way. You, you, you yeah, and, carved your and, own path. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, we didn't get to this part yet, but I was working on Wall Street in a room with 400 men. I was the first women's commodity, Jewish Orthodox women's commodities trader on the floor of the exchange. And I never knew that that was an issue. I never thought it was something off or odd. I knew about the boundaries. My father, Al-Shama, my mother had taught me the boundaries of, you know, when you're working in this environment about married men being alone, the rules of being um, alone with men, those components I was taught, but it was never discouraged as long as I was doing it in the respectful way. And I think that that's so powerful. Like I, I walked in, I had, I've had business meetings with prime ministers and, and, you know, CFOs and CEOs of major financial companies. I never knew it was an odd thing to do because it was just enhancing my interest, but at the end of the day, I would go home and do my cat, my chesed, my kindness. I would work with children. I didn't realize that there was a dichotomy. And it's interesting. I got married later in life. And when I talked to my husband, who's actually younger than me, um, and I share with him those stories when we were dating and he's like, this, this is unique. Like he's like, you know, I didn't really always talk about it with, um, everyone just because it wasn't my identity. My work was not my identity. My identity was who I was. But when I would share with him about these situations and these stories, he's like, this is not the norm. And he would tell me, and I'm like, I never knew better. Like I did not know better. It's like I was living in a box in the opposite way because of teachers and those who were in my life, my family and those who were close to me. And I think that that's so powerful to see because then you do things without fear, still in the constructs of religious orthodoxy and you're admired for it. I mean, I, I led smoking cessation groups for the traders at my firm and the wives by um, perm time sent me gifts thanking me. And I was like, I didn't realize like, is this not what everyone does? Or when there was someone who wasn't well because chesed was my life, that's what we did. Like, you know, Chesed means we just, loving we, kindness, doing, doing loving kindness, right? Devoting love- some time, uh, some efforts to to doing kindness, just for the sake of of, of doing kindness. Exactly. So after nine eleven, when one of our colleagues was, he was actually burned, and that's a whole other story. In the towers, he was a colleague of ours. I had a, I started a campaign to keep, you know, having visitors visit him in the hospital, making sure that his mother got certain things that she needed because she was overwhelmed with driving. These thoughts, I didn't realize that they were admirable. I was just living my life as a Jew, but the world was seeing it. So I think that, you know, a lot of times we we think we have to prove ourselves. You just have to be who you are and surround yourself with people who encourage you because then you don't know that there's any limits. And that's that's what I was raised with. And now as a professional dealing with businessmen, dealing with schools, organizations, parents, doing trainings in companies, which again, that's the part that we don't talk about on social media or on my websites. We train 
Fortune 500 CEOs and manager teams on how to be regulated and to be proper leaders, mm -hmm. the key point is to remember that you're dealing always with humans. So who you are and your religion and your context and your history and your struggles or maybe your ease and your privilege, that creates who you are. There's no limitation in the conversation. Tovia, I don't know where you're from. I don't know what your story is. I want to know about it. That's going to be my interest after we're done here to find out what you're about. But at the same time, we're speaking soul to soul, whether we have differences or not. So that's, that's the key point in being able to push through barriers. And if you have an interest, go for it. Don't think that it can be limited by religion or by context or opportunity. Thank you for that message. Okay. Now let's, let's go back to your, your, uh, your career in finance. And how old were you when you were a commodities trader in a room with 400 men in, in, Wall, in Wall Street? Great, great question. So I actually went to Downstate. I was the youngest um, graduate from Downstate Occupational Therapy School. Okay. And I went there to heal myself because I had suffered with these integration issues. And in these anxieties that I had, I recognized it wasn't psychological, but it was physiological. So I went to Downstate. Tell me integration I, issues. I just don't know the terminology, the sure. jargon. What are integration yeah. issues? So integration issues are how we perceive information that's coming from our environment. We have our five senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, and our sense of touch. And we have three hidden senses, our sense of balance, our proprioceptive system, which is where we are in space. Like right now, you're, you know, furrowing your eyebrows, your your forehead, and you're now smiling. This is giving feedback to tell you where your limbs are in space and where your body is. Okay. And then there's the interoceptive system, how we feel when our stomach is hurting, when our heart is racing, how are our inner limbs feeling. When your information and the way you're processing that information becomes too much, it can interrupt the way that your brain functions. It can interrupt your stress levels, your ability to focus, our ability to process information, to listen fully, to be present. And I suffered with that. There were many things that overwhelmed me. And I would sometimes get very anxious about things. I needed to know what was going to happen. I needed to have my things planned. Everything had to be just so. I thought it was my culture. I grew up from Europeans. My father was Hungarian. My mother is Romanian. I thought it was just a cultural thing. But what I learned, it was actually a physiological thing for me. And when I changed and learned how to heal myself through doing movements and exercises to integrate my senses and the way that my body responded, I was a much more organized, much more calmer, more focused person. How did you and, know? How did, when did you find out it wasn't the cultural thing and it was a so when I was in high, when I was in high school and I was dealing with the social dynamics of peer pressure, and I recognized that I wanted to be accepted for who I was, but I wasn't really truly being who I was because mm -hmm. I was creating different ways to help myself. I went through that exploratory phrase. I remember it was about ninth or tenth grade, just when I was starting a new high school. And I did research and I read all the psycholo psychological books out there. And I'm like, no, I trauma doesn't fit. You know, I didn't have that, no abandonment. And then I remembered things that my mother did for me as a young person. I always wanted a heavy blanket, even if it would be 100 degrees outside. And she gave it to me. I remember going to stores in Borough Park where we'd have to get our Shabbos outfits and our fancy outfits. And I would always go on a weekday. Because every time I went to a clothing store and there was, I tried on a fabric that was different than what I was used to, I would scream. Tags bothered me. I was horribly, horribly dysfunctional in this way. If the chicken on a plate touched the rice, 
I wouldn't eat it. So my mother ended up buying me these separated plates. I don't know if you remember them, the three, there were like oh, yeah, three sure. compartments. They still make those. And they still have those? Okay. <laughs> and that's what I need in order to eat. And I realized, you know what? This is not normal. This is impacting me. And I'm always on a heightened reserve when I'm with my friends. I'm always on guard. And I was exhausted. So I wanted to help myself. And my parents were giving me all the compensations naturally, just being good parents without mm -hmm. knowing why. And I wanted to figure out, but why is it bothering me? I'm going to get married. I'm going to be the head of a household. I'm going to want to work. This is not normal. You know, you go to a business meeting and you're like, I'm sorry, can you please give me a plate with dividers that I can enjoy this? And I'm always nervous about what's going to be. So in my exploration, I discovered Gene Ayers, who started in 1970s, bringing out the idea of sensory integration. And that's where my passion led me to heal myself. So I went to school, really not for the degree, but really to help myself. Uh -huh. And during that time, back to your question about Wall Street. Why, well, during, why, didn't, you go, wait, why didn't you go to therapy yeah. to help yourself? Why did you go to school to help So yourself? there were no OTs in my area that were dealing with adults. And okay. there was only an OT out in Arizona. And yeah. at that time, I was 18, 19 years old. I wasn't going to start going there. Okay. But I did know there were two things I knew. Number one, I was not going to get married with this kind of issue. I needed to resolve it quickly because I saw how it was a dysfunction. It was, it was affecting me internally and nobody knew it. I was able to fake it to the world, but I was tired, exhausted from this. And there was no label for me, right? Like there was no, nobody, nobody could tell that I had these issues, only my family. So I knew that even if, if I did help myself, I would try and help others as a kindness again. Just if I was able to do it for myself, I would try and bring out this kind of information and help to others. So that's why, and we'll get to how I got into finance, but when I was working on Wall Street, every day I would go home at four o'clock, leave the city, come back to Borough Park, and I would treat children from like 5.30 until 8 o'clock at night, just to give back for all the things that I had done. Now, while I was in downstate, which was during the day, in the evening I went to Brooklyn College and I studied law and I studied um, business while I was there. So I have a, a lot of, um, I'm a certified financial analyst. I studied to become a CFA because I knew that Wall Street was gonna be my track. And that's how I ended up in those rooms. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, the, yeah. the, the time frame here. Sure. First, after uh, you're graduating high school on time or early? I'm 18 when I graduate. Okay. I'm in downstate for three years, simultaneously in the evening taking classes. And Got then it. when I'm 20, when I'm starting to do my rotations during um, for a couple of days per week, I had been trading monies mm -hmm. for a while. My father had had friends and I was managing it. And someone recruited me. They wanted me to work um, on the commodities exchange, to work for futures, for those of you who are not familiar, it's not just stocks, but it's also futures. Okay. And I said, sure, I learned that it's the same component. It's the same idea, same number, same kind of rationale. And I said, sure, no problem. So at 21, that's when I had graduated. I had finished my rotations. I went to Wall Street and started working there. And then, of course, there were offshoots. There were hedge funds who approached us to do lots of investment banking. I was also involved with um, Lazar and Company, which has mergers and acquisitions. So they had recruited me because of my certified financial analyst degree to kind of work on deals that were being formatted for um, investment banking at that time and lots of mergers that were happening. I don't do that so often right now. That's not my focus at all, but I'm still involved in the markets on the side. So that's how I ended up on Wall Street. And then after 9-11, 
that was a turning point for me. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the story or I saw the post. Yeah. I saw the post and I was going to ask, I was, I was thinking maybe that was a turning point because it's such a traumatic experience. Yeah. Okay. So tell, tell me about it. So just to share with the audience, um, I just want to remind that, you know, if anyone is triggered by this, just I'm going to share a little bit about my story. So I just want to give that heads up because I've shared this in the past and I don't want to bring up any emotional context for anyone who's listening. But 9-11 was a huge turning point for me because my life was spared. Um, I was just living my life, doing what I needed to do. And the Friday before 9-11, my boss had shared with me that he wanted me to come to the early team meetings at 8 30. And typically being a young girl who was out on the town, for me, my sleep was important. And having to wake up a full hour early for a five minute meeting was very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And I remember the entire weekend I was complaining. I can, I can remember myself complaining about this. And I showed up Monday morning and I showed up on Tuesday morning, the day of 9-11 as well. And I was there for that meeting. It was like, it wasn't actually, the meeting didn't even happen yet, but I showed up on time and then 9-11 occurred. And um, it was a very, very, very serendipitous time for me. There was a lot of hashgacha um, pratis. I'm not sure. Synchronicity, what word we use for your audience? What would you say? A divine providence, divine providence. Uh, feeling that God is watching over you and, and directing your life personally. Yeah, 100% I felt that way because um, what I discovered are twofold. First of all, my life was spared because that morning, everyone who I had gone with, typically on the route going to the World Trade Center had perished on that lower level when the towers collapsed. Every single person that had been on my old route had died. A second reason that I knew that there was divine providence was that earlier that summer, there was a lottery that was in place for my company. And 50% of us were going to be in the towers and 50% of us were going to stay by the commodities exchange, which is a small building right next door. And I remember I was praying and saying, I really want to get into the towers. I was very into fashion at the time and there was a shopping mall and to have to get dressed and go over there every single day to see what was going on and make exchanges for stores. I was like, this would be so convenient for me to be in the towers. Again, very superficial mind. My head was in a different world at that time. And I remember how disappointed I was when I wasn't chosen. And what I learned is that many of our colleagues who were in the towers did perish that day. So in some ways, I had a double dose of seeing Hashem's, God's direct hand in making sure that I would live. And I reflected on that and it hit me very powerfully. What more do I need to do? What is my true purpose? Mm-hmm. And when I thought about it and I realized that God is truly, truly busy with me, I need to be busy with what he wants. I need to figure this out. Is it about the clothing? Is it about just making the money? What is my true purpose? And I just want to also put a disclaimer out there that if you're working in finance and you're making money, it is a purpose. Money allows good things to happen. But was it really what Amy needed? Was it what my purpose was? And when I reflected for myself, I realized that I was in finance because it helped my mind. It helped me use my powers of thought. But the actual dynamics and my environment and what I was doing, I didn't really need to be on Wall Street actively doing that. What really resonated in my heart was when I would leave Wall Street and work with these children and help them because of my own struggle. And that was a turning point. 
I had a couple of more gigs. I worked professionally in Carnegie Towers for a hedge fund. And slowly but surely, I started fading out in the prominent way of being connected in the financial world and started putting more of my energy into the business of what I'm doing now. I do want to share that because of my own intellectual needs, I'm still involved in the financial world, in real estate and other components, and we still consult, but it's not where my primary focus is. And my kids can tell you that mommy every day for a half hour still looking at the markets because that's my release. That's where I'm able to relax and that's my intellectual thought and that's okay. That's what I need, right? Relax with the markets. (laughs) (laughs) With regard to what's happening in my full focus, it's to help families and children and, and bring awareness to the world on this because my sister was a big part of this story. She was a witness to me. She grew up with me. She watched my transformation. She was an accountant because who needs another Jewish therapist, right? So she pursued accounting, became a CPA, was working for one of the top five firms in New York. And then she realized she hated it. And she's like, I'm going to do OT. I love science. And so together- She was following your lead. You had already- Done the, I had, right. She had had yeah. the sciences in, she wanted to do OT, but she was holding back from it okay. because she thought who needs another therapist in our okay. community. Got it. But then once she saw that I had helped myself during those years that I was in university, I was changing. She said, I want to do this. Like I want to help. I want to go with where my desires. And she mm-hmm. actually worked with geriatrics, working down with kids okay. and together with our financial background and our business background, we recognize that doing your work and being reflective of who you are, you can make money. And at the same time, at the end of the day, feel like you have purpose in the world. And that's that's the combination. That's what you want in life. Because when I wake up in the morning, even though I have lots of emails and lots of people telling me where I'm supposed to be and what to do, I'm excited about it. I'm interested in it. There's Yes, there are hard times, but I'm doing what is my true purpose. What's Amy's purpose? And that's, that's very, very, very rewarding and very motivating. And that's, that's how, that's my story, just in a nutshell, maybe not a nutshell, but there you go. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That is really powerful. So let me ask, when you started transitioning out of the financial world, and I understand you're still involved a little bit, uh, and you started building up something with your sister, what what did you you started with the with the therapy with you, you start with the actual therapeutic practice or however you call it and then you built it into a continuing education like how did how did that develop sure so we we were we were active in the early thousands right two thousands yeah. and there was no such thing as social media we didn't even have a website and we were right. extremely committed to what it was that we were doing we really wanted to help children you set up a therapy you set up a practice in Brooklyn for your community. Nope. No, I I started out working for the Department of Education and I worked for the school-based system and early intervention. So those children who were between the ages of zero and three, like newborns to three years old. Mm -hmm. And I would go from home to home, school to school, doing evaluations and treating. My sister started in geriatrics, working with those who were in nursing homes and hospitals. And she actually worked her way down. She worked through rehab, physical dysfunction, you know, working with sports, um, people who had sport injuries. And slowly she started getting into pediatrics because that was her niche. 
I started in pediatrics because um, my first client was an adult and actually died on me. And that was too much for me. And I said, I'm going to go with Pete. So when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go early on, I said, pediatrics is a safe bet. I was a little traumatized by that first client that I had that I was working in an outpatient. And what happened is that we did start our practice in Borough Park on our own. Very few clients. Our first year, we had four clients. They were all not approved for services through the school system, and they came to our practice. And we were charging very minimally. Again, when you're starting out, you're really servicing to get your own experience. And what we discovered, which was interesting, and this was pretty early on after two years of working with the school system, is that children would do extremely well when they had therapy. And then over summer break or holiday break, they would regress. And we were like, you know, what's up with that? Like, why is that happening? And we were both single at the time and had the freedom to travel. So for our continuing education, instead of just taking regular courses for OTs, we started learning from pediatricians and from speech pathologists, behavioral psychologists around the world. And we traveled and we started learning from pediatricians who were dealing with children who were typical and not atypical. And what we learned is that there's actually an underlying cause to why you develop sensory integration issues. Yes, I had healed myself and I was aware enough with my intellect to understand that, but I had never known why I was the way I was. There's there a gene that creates that? Is there some kind of environmental component? So did you, what, did you, you, in the school for occupational therapy, when you were learning in order to teach, you were learning ways to deal with your own issues, but you weren't right. learning what, what the causation was. What exactly, okay. exactly, bingo. So they teach you in occupational therapy school about the systems, about the reflexes, but they don't explain about the underlying reason as to why you develop that way or what's missing in that key component. And what we learned is that you need to really look at every single brain profile individually. And what's hard about the approach that we develop is that it's not a one size fits all, which I know seems so much like common sense, but it truly, truly, truly is a case, even within families with large, with so many children and parents say, oh, the symptoms are the same. When we look at the child or we look at an adult, even one of the parents, they have a different profile. The way to reach the point of resolution or treatment is completely a different way than an exact matching sibling with the same symptoms. And this was revolutionary and we didn't really realize that it was, but we started changing the way we gave therapy to those who were in our private practice. And then in 2014, it was 2014, 2015. Yeah, Wait, in, the, in the meantime, the private practice is, is growing. Yes. And, and you're also working at the same time with the Board with of Department of Education. Department of right. Education and, and your sister, was your sister employed through yeah. hospitals or also the Department of Education? She was also, she started, again, she started in the hospitals, worked her way down, and then she went okay. to the Department of Education. Okay. And then, I'm sorry, before I get to 2014, 15, 2009, we approached the Department of Education in New York, we had a meeting with the chancellor and we showed them how our clients who were paying out of pocket were actually improving in a much more effective, different way because we did intense therapy for a couple of months and then no therapy for a couple of months to let the brain consolidate. And we were showing them how those clients who paid us privately when we were getting like straight money, they a year later or two were off services, had no help, didn't qualify. While all the children that were on our caseload through the Department of Education, we were seeing continuously, but we weren't able to do the treatment we'd like. And we'd ask them if they can just, they pay us the same amount, if we could change the way that we gave the treatment. 
and they denied us. They said no. They said that it would be too much of a mandate, paperwork. There would be periods of time where therapists wouldn't get paid. And we're like, no, you just do a rotation. We had an answer for everything. And what we realized is it was a money-driven um, organization and not so much about really helping the children. And we got turned off and we left. We left the Department of Education after that point, And we went full boat into our practice. And that was in 2009. And after working and we never advertised, it was always through word of mouth that people came to our practice. In 2012, we were um, recognized by the American Pediatric Association to do a 20-minute talk, which is a huge thing for an OT who does not have an MD. Um, I was actually pregnant at the time, so we had to push off that talk because I had my due date then, but we did create a website. And they had said, you need to have a website. And we were like, website? You know, like, we don't, we just get people calling us. So we created a website. And then um, what happened was the website designers, like, you have to write a blog. We're like, oh, really? You have to write a blog? They're like, yes, you should have a blog on there. So we wrote a blog and it blew up and we wrote a blog on screen time and it exploded. And all of a sudden we started getting requests to speak and to teach and to share our approaches because they saw the other components of our practice and they were interested and intrigued. So we started speaking and sharing our information. And at some point, therapists would email us and say, can you please give this talk? But I need accreditation. Psychologists would email us, OTs, speech pathologists. And we were like, what do you mean accreditation? So we started into the new business of hands-on approaches where we started getting accredited by all the national organizations to give this kind of information and get it accredited under them. And let me tell you, it is difficult because every single field has a different approach and a different frame of reference as to what they consider to be evidence-based. And we are so honored and humbled that we are able to do this now for social workers, mental health professionals, OT, speech pathologists, pediatricians. And we recently got um, approved to give international conferences. So that's how hands-on approaches evolved. And then once we started giving talks, we wanted to bring in some of our mentors, the ones that we learned from. So we started bringing them in and and thank God that's been really, really powerful in being able to spread the knowledge with other professionals out there. And of course, COVID really opened up our world, the online world. We expanded on that. And that's where hands-on approaches is right now. And then I'll tell you how we evolved that out. Yeah. Okay. I have a question in the process yeah. of, of getting there. When you were flying out to, to visit, uh, to hear lectures, were, how did you find, how did you find out who was, who was the one to hear? How did you do the research and, and figure out who was developing creative approaches in, in these areas? So I, I want to share with you that I, I did, didn't know this then, but my sister and I are unique in this, that we, we are open to hearing and then we're cynical. I didn't realize it beforehand, but I would just try and look up everyone and anyone and travel. We had the freedom of time. We took mm -hmm. time off from our work schedule. There wasn't an issue of, you know, supporting ourselves. We had that freedom. That was a privilege for us. And what we learned is that there's a lot of charlatans out there, a lot, and people who pretend or make it seem that they have degrees, and they really don't. And when you meet them and you question them, they get defensive instead of being open to really looking at that information. So it wasn't a process that I knew, oh, jackpot, let me learn from this one or let me learn from that one. Mm -hmm. And I'll also share that in that process of having to explore the internet now is really messing up professionals in some ways because anyone can present themselves if they have good marketing and a good SEO um, tech guy or anyone, 
they're able to put themselves up there and promote themselves. If they have a good following on Instagram or LinkedIn, you think they're the guru. But when you really sit down one-on-one and connect with them, that's when you really can learn if they really, and also find out who their clients were. We researched who all these folks were. And before we traveled, we found out from them references and people so that we wouldn't be learning and wasting our time. But I will tell you, even with all that research, we discovered a lot of them were not accurate. But we did find those who were truly, truly the real deal. I will share with you a little bit behind the scenes. For hands-on approaches, we get requests from professionals to present for us under our company all the time. And we have a very strict vetting process and it can be sometimes quite annoying, but at the same time, it has saved us from having trouble. And we've, we learned this, this was a learning curve for us. And we discovered that in today's day and age, you really need to know who you're learning from and who the source is from. And that's why we always encourage you ask questions, ask for proof. Don't be afraid. If someone's not going to answer you or get defensive or say the words, trust me, run away from them run away from them because that's not how our professional world works, especially when you're dealing with the mind, the body, you're dealing with children, development, medical components, mental health components. So just that would be like the disclaimer and the process. And if you want to figure out where to go, be curious, be open, give yourself that freedom of time. I think that our learning curve um, got hastened because we had that freedom. If we would have been committed to a job or not have had the ability to take a year off and do this, our cycle would have been later and maybe we'd be talking 20 years from now instead of now. But I will tell you that even with everything coming out in the last couple of years, we don't have now, you know, time to take off a year and still do our learning. We do commit time in our schedule to make sure to still learn because even today, even though we're the teachers, we still have to learn because there's new information coming up all the time. So the way you find it is you're curious, you ask questions, and you are very focused in making sure that you learn from who you think is worth the time of learning. And if you made a mistake, that's okay. Can I now and this and this question, can I bring it back to your to your Jewish background? Sure. Does, does your your Jewish upbringing, your um, of course um, your Torah learning and and understanding does that help you in the process of vetting out the charlatans and 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 looking and following what what looks like a good lead of a good approach to helping heal children and adults and so I love that. I love that question to me and I really think that it's opportune for today's day and age and times because um my sister and I are very involved in the Orthodox community and the outside of the Orthodox community. And we're seeing a difference, a shift that's happening globally in our discussions. And interestingly, I've started wearing my hair covering on talks and I give a weekly talk with my sister and I'm part of organizations where diversity is, is respected. So wearing my tichel, which is a different, it's just a hair covering and not a wig has actually bought more awareness and allowed me to share some of this insight. And I'll tell you that I am full, very full, disclo- full disclosure. What you have yeah. now is a wig, right? Is a wig. Yes. This is know. a wig. Okay. Yes. Okay, this it. is a wig. <laughs> Married women, um, some in the Orthodox community typically cover their hair with a wig or a hair covering after they're married. My sister is single. So that's all her hair. But when you see me and it seems like I'm having my wig, my hair out there, it's actually a wig. Got it. Um, and sometimes you'll see me on social media in my hair covering. And okay. I, I've started doing a little bit more of that. And I'll, I'll share with you this really connected to what you're asking about finding sources that are valid. 
So in our profession itself, there's so many alternative methods and alternative ways of healing, correct? There's yoga, there's energy healing, there's all these components. And I am not going to talk on those topics now. That could be for another podcast to understand the nuances and how to relate. But the fact that prayer is a key component in my life, I found that that was a true, true resource for me when I was trying to feel what's connected. Now, between my sister and myself, I'm highly sensitive. So I can meet someone and based on their voice and just looking at them, I can sense something even if they don't speak sometimes. And I'm able to feel, oh, trusting, non-trusting, body language, all of these components. It was extremely helpful with the markets. I was able to predict things from looking at how the market was playing out in business dealings, at meetings. I would work with Mr. Lazar and sometimes I would ask a question from someone and he'd be like, why would you ask that? And I'm like, that person was exuding that that's what he wanted to talk about, whether it was about coffee or about his child. And it was interesting. It, it changed and shifted the dynamics of the world. Now, can I d- identify what that is? No. But there's a lot of healing and a lot of methods out there and a lot of teachers out there who bring resources. But if you look into the resources themselves, they're actually their own resources. They're not They're not vetted. They're not having a control group. So when I would pray, having had that experience, I remember using prayer as a source for me to tap into myself, to be open, to see what was true and what was not. And although I can't put words on that, I think that in the religious context, when we ask Hashem or God to help us and to get surround us with people who are correct, he leads us to that place. And if not, if there's a circumstance, we've had some speakers that the contracts didn't work out or the work didn't work out and we were devastated. And then using the Jewish perspective of saying, you know what, if it didn't work out, there's a reason for it. I know that there's background noise. Sorry about that. But um, if there is something that's happening and you, it didn't work out for you, Gamzulatova, this too is for the good. And I know it's a hard concept sometimes in this world where we're talking about manifestation, we're talking about the hustle, that you should still go after it. Sometimes leaning into those Jewish and from perspectives, Orthodox perspectives and religious perspectives is saying, you know what, it's in God's hand. That's the release that we all need. That's where you can get the energy to keep moving forward. There are lots of battles to get to where I am now, and I still have so many more to go through in my life. But leaning into that Torah perspective is a huge force for me and saving factor in being able to move forward and to see clearly that God's hands were involved because those speakers where the contracts didn't work out a couple of years later, they were shown to not be accurate or not to be who they were supposed to be. And the folks who we learned from, and we even maybe spent the time, even if they were charlatans in the end, I learned something from them or I learned how to question the next person. There are always lessons that are in our lives. And the Torah view is that you have to see that the negative, there's good in that as well. And I think that that's something that I lean into. That was, if I had to pick one area of focus, that would have been it. Amazing. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So your, so your connection to prayer is uh, people, I I know prayer is a difficult concept to understand what are we accomplishing with prayer, but I think I understand from what you said that you are, you're, you're having a conversation with God to give you the clarity to 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 be to to do what's right to go to follow the right paths to, to there's so many so so much information out there and so many people uh, presenting different ideas of how to in your in your case how to heal someone with a problem someone with an issue 
that you either you don't know which direction to go. So you're asking for clarity. And also it's it's giving you a certain sense of calm that when things don't work out the way you expected, the way you wanted, you can sort of resign and say that this was this is also God guiding guiding us and and or is there anything precisely. you'd like to add to that? Yeah. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> and you know, I, I wanted to share on like how this is mirroring in our work because now my sister and I, as part of our work, we hold weekly talks every week and we, it's called Quiet the Noise and we talk about brain development and self development. And that, that's and a podcast. It's a weekly talk that we do on Zoom. Anyone can listen. Okay. If you're on social media, you can watch on Clubhouse, LinkedIn audio. You mm-hmm. can listen in. I'm usually, um, cooking in the background, my Shabbos meal. My sister is at home doing her thing okay. and we answer questions live. Uh-huh. And we have about, we have about, we have now, last week was 1400 people. So the cra- crowd is wow. growing. Yeah. And what I wanted to share with that is that in our conversations, when we talk to parents, when we talk to adults, when we talk to those who are asking about their own issues, about productivity and self-development, God comes into play. I'm seeing that it's being mirrored back, meaning in the healing process of learning about the brain and the body, you have to bring in God's awareness. You have to recognize that. Science is there, but at some point when we can't explain something, it's the spirituality. And those words are not mine. I'm not the one sharing that on the talks. You hear it from those who are asking the question that there must be source, there must be spirit, there must be something more. And hearing, that's what I meant by that global Mm -hmm. change, that in us asking for clarity and recognizing that everything that's happening is through God's hand, I also think that in the work that we're doing, whether you're making deals on Wall Street or you're helping children or families or you're a psychologist, there's a factor that's outside of who you are. There's that, that hand that's guiding you. And I will share with you something I've never shared publicly that wow. when my, yeah, when my, this is for anyone who's going to come to us for Exclusive, our tribe podcast. Okay. Let's hear it. Well, I, I'll tell you the truth is no one really brought this out in me. So I thank you, Tavir, for allowing me to share this before my sister and I do an evaluation. We say a prayer. We actually wrote something out that we ask Hashem and God to help us be a messenger and to see clearly and to see truthfully. And when I light my Shabbos candles on Friday night, I have a list of every single client's name mm-hmm. that I look at and I say, please allow me to be the correct messenger because as intelligent as I am and as recognized in my field as I am, we're only conduits and he is truly in play every second. And that, that's how we live our life right now. And we're seeing that the world is starting to start to reflect it. Do you know that this talk that we give, we've been giving it now for about a year and a half. We started in COVID. We just found out before um, Rosh Hashanah, the new year, that two people wrote to us and said that they became religious in their own way. One was went back to Christianity for themselves and one came back to Judaism. And I was like, wow. And they're like, yeah, because you guys speak about science, you give the tips, and then you encourage us to look and find for ourselves that extra part, that extra piece. And for everyone that's different, it might not be religion. It might just be spirit. So religion is is just a conduit. People see it. When we talk, you can tell. I don't hide that I'm Jewish. I don't deny my Judaism. I don't make it a focus of my talks, but it, it ends up coming out anyway. So it's and you. Today, yeah, that's it. That's me. <laughs>
Wow. Yeah. I have never shared like no pot, no interviewer has ever asked this question or these topics. So I appreciate being able to share this, Sylvia. Thank you. I'm very happy to to bring that out. And that's, you know, that's what we're doing here. We're, uh, we're doing Jewish outreach. We're teaching a lot of, we're teaching Torah. We're trying to, uh, to help Jewish youth from, you know, from culturally or, or genealogically Jewish backgrounds to understand what is it, what is this that they are born into? And so that's, you know, it's, it's by speaking with people such as yourself, people and, and, and in so many other fields and, and hearing how they integrate their own selves, their, their, their essence with, with what they do professionally and what in their family life so that we were really bringing out how, how it becomes, you know, how this, this thing called Torah, it's not just, it's not words in a book. It's not, you know, <laughs> right. Not just this. It's, 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 it's something that, that integrates in every aspect of a person's, of a person's being. And then really, yeah. I really appreciate that you, that you brought that up. Yeah. And I, I just, I want to share, like I was talking about the Shabbos candles. I mean, Shabbos was such a gift, such a gift for us in this world, whether you're, a mother or you're not a mother. I remember being single and having this pressure of Wall Street and those, again, this is before 9-11, when I had those demands of what I had to do and what marks we wanted, they wanted us to get returns on those investments. There's a pressure, there's that, the gift of Shabbos and just being able to like, you know, put light those candles, that's my start, have an end with a candle and the gift of Shabbos to be completely disconnected. The entire the entire gift of Shabbos is just something that I wish more people understood. And I know that the world and society is starting to do that now with their Sunday days and people are getting off tech and technology, but there's so much in Torah values that helps you with all the things that you think you need to look outside for. It's all in there. So just, you know, you bought that out a reminder as well. Okay. Now I know there's, there's so much more that you have to share. And uh, I, I don't want to make it too long, uh, just just to make it digestible. And and I, I just want to ask if uh, our students, our listeners, anybody who's listening would want to find out more about, let's say they have a child and they know that this child is super sensitive or, or any of these issues that you're describing as a parent or as, let's say, the person himself, the person, the, the listener, his, him herself is, is hearing what you're describing and saying, you know, I, I must have some of these issues. Where can they look? Where's a really practical first step for them to, to, under, to understand more and to grow? So area? I would leave, that's a great question. I would leave them to two places. The first place is our website, handsonotrehab.com. Under blog, you will see all these articles that we've written based on just getting information. If you're an auditory learner, I would tell you to go to our podcast called Quiet the Noise. Mm -hmm. But the major, major places on both of these um, areas will reference you back to our live talks that we're doing every single Friday at 9.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Through COVID, through holidays, we have committed to that. Sign up for the email list and you'll know if there's a change, but that is where you will get the best resources and be able to ask questions live. Just to recognize, we do have a membership. And we have many adults and professionals who come, not only those who are parents, and we're actually launching it to the public um, in early November of 2022. But if your podcast is coming out after that, they can always reach out and find out when that next round is. And in this membership, we don't, we're very, very um, selective in what we have people be busy with. Like you said, time is valuable. 
So we create modules that they can learn on their own, and we also create support groups for whichever issue or whatever component you want to work on. And it's very, very cheap so that people do not get burdened with that because therapy in general is very, very expensive for many. And this was our offshoot to our nonprofit work that we wanted to do support individuals and families. So definitely check that out. And our website is always, the email us is always the best way to know what's going on. Okay. So the, the as of now, Quiet the Noise yeah. is, is a live talk for members only? It's a live talk for anyone, for, for anyone. anyone. But okay. if you want to get the recordings for them, you'd have to, there's a membership called The Vault. Uh-huh. And it's, again, it's for our nonprofit. So it's like a taxable donation. You can search any topic uh-huh. that we've ever spoken about. And every single recording will pop up on that and it will go straight to the topic. So if let's Mm -hmm. say in one hour we address four different topics and you're not interested in the other two, you can just search and we created this, we worked with a website developer who created a website that you just, it's like Google. You just Google what are Amy and Evelyn talking about when it comes to anxiety or when it comes to productivity or self-regulation or anger and where does it stem from? And boom, every single video clip or every audio clip that we've ever spoken on will be set to that information or that term. And it's mm-hmm. pretty powerful. So we did that just because there's so much information out there and we want to quiet the noise for people. So they don't always want to listen to an hour talk or, you know, it might be too much for them. So it's a great way for them to get that information. So. Okay. Amy, this yeah. is a very enlightening conversation. I, I, we so much appreciate your time. So many will benefit from this. I hope so many will listen. <laughs> yes, not, not definitely. Definitely. Definitely share with us when you're going to be bringing it out. We'll definitely share it with our community as well. So, okay. We really appreciate that. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.